We just sang about uh, fixing our eyes on the Lord. And Peter tells us in the first chapter of his first letter, he tells us that we cannot see God. We can't see him. Uh, You won't be able to uh, leave here today and go and find him and make a good visual inspection of him. Uh, We'll go through this entire life, likely never hearing him, feeling him, seeing him. We don't experience him with our senses in that way. And yet Peter tells us that though we do not see him, we believe. We love him. And so how is it that we fix our eyes on Jesus? We do it by faith. That is the way we grab hold of God. And we know that our faith grows as we spend time in the Word. The Word is, is kind of like the medicine for the eyes of our hearts that help us to see clearly. Glasses, really, for the eyes of our hearts so that our hearts can see God by faith and, and grab hold of Him. And that's why we come together around His Word. I, I, I said some time ago that I think we need to be constantly reminded why it is we read the Bible. There's so many reasons we read the Bible, and if we're not careful, we can just fall into a pattern of, of neglecting the Word because we have no theology of, of why. We have no reason for why we would read it, and so it's just an obligation placed upon us, and so we neglect it and we get distracted. But I think when we remember that our eyes won't see Christ clearly without the Word, then we rush away and say, I need to see him. Because if I can't see him, then my problems are huge. My sins are huge. Everything else is so much in my sight, but not the Lord. And so we come now to do this together as a body. Let me just encourage those of you who aren't involved in a gospel community group. And I say this to to those of you who maybe are just starting to visit or have been visiting for a short time or maybe have been here for a long time and and maybe you just haven't uh, been able for whatever reason to go to gospel community group or you haven't seen the value in it. I would just encourage you. That is one of the, the key ways that we take the word preached on Sunday morning and we begin to massage it into our hearts and our lives. And it's one of the ways that we build community so that we can hold each other accountable for living the word. Because it's easy to live in the shadows, to live in isolation, and just to kind of be encumbered by our sins and and just no one's there to hold us accountable. But when we have to come and confess our sins to one another and talk about our struggles and when we get to bear the burdens of others, there's a kind of growth that takes place in all of us. So let me just encourage you, take this word that you received today and bring it in your heart with you to Gospel Community Group this week. So for several weeks now, our attention has been in one way or another on Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark has been in view for a little while. We've seen Noah build the ark. We've seen Noah and his family and the animal kinds enter the ark. We've seen the ark rise high above the mountains as it floated on the water. We've seen the ark come to rest on the land. And last week we finished with Noah exiting the ark. And immediately after he exits the ark, he builds an altar and he does burnt offerings. He makes offerings to God immediately after he gets 
off of the ark. So that's really been the one, uh, in addition to Noah, of course, that's been the one feature that we've seen go throughout all the way from chapter 6 through into chapter 9 as we come uh, to our passage for today. So what happens after the ark? What happens after Noah's ark? That's the question that we come to today. And so the title for the sermon today is simply After the Ark. And this will be part one. We'll look at part two next week. Today we'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. So if you'll go ahead and turn there. Genesis 9, 1 to 17. After the Ark, part one. There are two major passages that come between Noah's exiting the ark and his death. So if you look at the end of chapter 9, verse 29... It says, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah's death has been approaching. This righteous man, this blameless man, has death hanging over him, just as every other human being who's lived up to this point has. And so when we come to the end of chapter 9, we are done with Noah. We are done with this uh, journey that we've been in since the very end of chapter 5, when Noah and his sons were introduced. And we'll then get into Noah's son's after verse 29. And of course they're introduced before. So we get these. Between this point of Noah exiting the ark. And Noah's death. We get these two major passages. Verses 1 to 17 is one passage. And that's what we're going to look at today. And then verses 18 to 29. Which is what we'll look at next week. <clears throat> so what about today's passage? Well in 9, 1 to 17. We see God's interaction with Noah and his sons. So it begins in verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. So this this is God engaging with Noah and his sons. And then in verse 8, we get, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. So this is God's interaction with Noah and these three sons. And then in the passage for next week, after the ark part 2, We'll look at verses 18 to 29, which gives us the interactions between Noah and his son. So we have this vertical relationship in this first passage after the ark, vertical relationship, God and Noah and his sons. And then next week, we're going to look at the horizontal relationships between these people who came off of the ark and what goes on, some of the strangeness uh, that we read about uh, Ham and Noah and the other two Brothers. So, chapter 9, verses 1 to 17, if you will please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word for His people. Verse 1 And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning 
for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You can go ahead and be seated. So, I trust that the Lord has been working in all of us as we have gone through this narrative of Noah. And one of the uh, points that I made last week dealt with uh, the effects that the the narrative of Noah has had on us, or maybe should uh, have had on us. And so, as we pray this morning... My request to you is that you would just take a moment at the beginning, and I'm just going to, before I pray, just take a moment and just ask that the Lord would take, as we move away from this narrative of Noah, as we move away from Noah's Ark and the flood, this very familiar text that maybe some of you have heard since you were little, although not all of you, that you would ask the Lord to, to put an indelible impression on your heart today of what he wants you to see specifically for your own life, what's going on in your life, that he would put that impression and that he would prick our hearts, that he would cut us to the heart with his word. That's what the first recipients of the apostolic preaching, that's what happened to them. They were cut to the heart by the word. And so pray that the Lord would do that in you. Seek him, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Our Father, it is no small thing to be here, gathered together as your people, under your word. Father, we know that you say in your word that it is inspired, that men wrote it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that it is God breathed. We know that you tell us in many places that your word is perfect, that it is pure, 
Psalm 119, many references to the perfection and purity of your word. We know that the Lord Jesus himself said that your word, scripture, cannot be broken. And we know, Father, that it is through your word that you made the heavens and the earth and that you have spoken and there was light and you spoke and all things were made and you have spoken and you have given rise to written scripture. And Father, we know that you, by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who authored this book from beginning to end, works in us as a seal of what you've promised to us. That he works in us to convict us of our sin. He works in us to assure us of our salvation and and to guide us and lead us into acts of love and service. To guide us to greater faith, hope, and love. To guide us to trust you and fight in your strength, your might. To be vigilant in prayer. And Father, we know that we are oftentimes closed off to your spirit. That we grieve him. We quench him. That we ignore him. Father, we ask your forgiveness for our sins. We ask that we would not do that today. And that one of the ways that we would not do that today is that we would listen to your word as it is read and preached this morning. Father, all of us, would you help us to be receptive in ears and in hearts? Would you help us to open our lives up to your scripture? And Father, to be changed this day. We believe that what we are doing here today is the kind of thing and is the very thing that angels desire to look into. That angelic beings far more beautiful and powerful than we can conceive are peeking into the happenings in this middle school cafeteria. And they are amazed, glorifying you as your people bought Blood-bought, redeemed sinners magnify you by faith. So, Father, help that be the case this morning. Would we worship you from pure hearts, and would we honor you in all that we say and do as we interact with one another, as we sing and as we listen, as we preach and pray? Father, would you guide us? We love you. We thank you for loving us, and we ask that you would protect us now from the evil one. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have 17 verses today that we're going to look at, and these 17 verses can really be divided into two parts, two parts of one whole. The first part is verses 1 to 7. As a unit, this deals with the theme of creation, very simply. Verses 1 to 7 has one glaring theme, creation. And then we go to verses 8 to 17, which deals with also one singular, very clear theme, and that is covenant. And so we've got creation and covenant. As we think about this vertical interaction between God and these humans, we've got creation and covenant. So two things to consider this morning, and you'll find these in your bulletin. As we look at God's interaction with Noah and his sons after the ark, we've got two things here to look at. First, creation reinstated, and secondly, covenant ratified. That's what we have in verses 1 
to 17. So let's look at the first of these, creation reinstated. Last week, we ended with God's gracious inner response to Noah's burnt offerings at the end of chapter 8. That's essentially what we had. We had this, this second reference to God's heart. It's very interesting as you go through um, this passage about Noah that you have this language about God's heart. That God is telling us that, that sin grieves him, we see in chapter 6. That God is moved by sin. And, it's, and as we talked about before, it's hard for us to understand what it, what it is and what it means, what it looks like for the eternal, unchangeable God to, to experience grief. But we know that God is accommodating himself to our language. He, he's, he's showing us, he's, he's trying to communicate to us the gravity of sin in his own mind, in his own heart. That we would understand that as humans. We all know what it is like to be grieved. And so God tells us that he is grieved. And then at the end of chapter 8, we get this reference to God's heart. As Noah offers these burnt offerings to God, we see that God is moved in his heart. That he, he smells, as it were, the soothing aroma. His anger towards human sin is being pacified. God's heart is moved by Noah's offerings. And God responds to that. So that at the end of chapter 8, we get the kind of inner workings of God in response to Noah. But then here... Well, let me read that first before we go on. So at the end of chapter 8, let me just read that to you. Verses 21 to 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, notice that. While the earth remains, as long as it remains, there will come a day when the earth will be done away with and remade. But while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. By the way, this is the reason the sun came up this morning. This is the reason that soon it will get a little cool. And we'll begin to see those beautiful leaves and break out the pumpkin spice and all that stuff. This is the reason why we transition in our seasons and, and days. All of this because God has preserved it. As we go back to this passage. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So that's what we got at the end of chapter 8. And what we have in chapter 9 Catch this, God is communicating this inner disposition, this inner attitude, this inner response. He is communicating that outwardly and verbally to humanity. And so what God has already determined within himself to do at the end of chapter 8 is communicated clearly and explicitly to the human beings at the beginning of chapter 9 to Noah and his sons. So what does God say? Let's look. The first part of what God says is in verses 1 to 7. I want to read those again so that we can kind of put the spotlight on them. So verses 1 to 7, and God blessed Noah. And listen closely to the language because this is going to be the focus in a moment. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. 
upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The most obvious feature, if I were to ask you this question, what is the most obvious feature of these verses, of this set of verses, of this message from God? I think you would say, I I think all of us would probably say it because it's so obvious, it's just in our face. I think we would all say that this brings the reader back to creation. It's just all over the place through here, just, just saturated with creation. And I think it does this in three ways that I want you to notice. The way that this, these verses bring our minds back to creation. So the first way that it does this is with specific creation language. They are blessed and told to multiply. We remember that language In Genesis chapter 1, they are given dominion over the animals, which will have a natural fear of humans. Uh, In Genesis 1, we're told that the humans will will have dominion over the animals and they will subdue the earth. And now we're told that there will be an innate fear of man. And we see this. Even the most deadly of snakes, here's the people coming through the forest and slithers as fast as he can to get away. Now we recognize that sometimes people get bitten eaten by sharks and that there are other kinds of animal attacks. And we understand this kind of thing happens in the world. But we see in nature a natural desire among the animals to get away from man, to fear man, to move away. And this is given to animals by God. They are given food. The humans are given food in the form of animals. Now man will be able to eat not just the plants, but also the animals. So if your vegetarianism is because of your health or because of other concerns, uh, okay. But if your vegetarianism is because you think that this is uh, wrong, morally wrong or or, or, or bad to, to eat animals, that's wrong according to The Bible, God has given animals to human beings to enjoy as food. And they are (laughs) reminded. That would be the one loud amen this morning. (laughs) And the humans are also reminded of the fact that they are made in the image of God. And so you see this language all throughout these Verses. And let me, so let me read to you Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see the parallel that we're meant to get here. So Genesis 1, verses 26 to 29 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. We see that. After our likeness. And let them have dominion. We see that. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Once again, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. You see the language. God blessed them. Same 
word. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Same language. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And so we're meant to see a parallel. The reader has to read the opening verses of chapter 9 in light of what is read there in Genesis chapter 1. So that's the first way that we see creation. The reader's mind is brought back to creation with this specific, very specific parallel language to Genesis 1. There's a second way, though, and that is with the bracketing. It's very important anytime you're reading the Bible that you notice when the text brackets itself. And what I mean by that is if you have a chunk of verses, you're reading through the Bible, you know, and this is, sometimes I think our reading of the Bible, we just take a little bit out of, randomly out of context and maybe apply it in some weird way to our lives and then we go on. But the way we ought to read the Bible is to look at the structure of the author. And one of the things that's interesting here is that at the very beginning, you get the same verbiage that you get at the end of this section. So at the very beginning of verse 1 and at the end of verse 7, you get the same verbiage. This is what you get in verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What does that tell us? That tells us that the author is saying, this is a little package. This is a little package of text here. We got an opening bracket. We got a closing bracket. And this whole package of text is about this being fruitful And multiplying, it's about creation blessing. And so the language itself and the brackets tell us what this section is about. It's drawing our minds to creation. And finally, the way we know this is because of God's care for life. One of the things that you cannot miss when you read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that God loves life. God is life, and he has imparted life in the ability to procreate, to reproduce. He did, that, he did that among the animals, and he's done that with humans. And so here we see God's care for life, and we see that in two ways. First, animal life. So in verse 4, it says this, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And I like the way Kent Hughes describes the respect for animal life that is depicted here. He says this, Humans are not to devour animals the way animals devour one another, while the blood is pulsating in the flesh. The reason for this is respect for life, and beyond that, the respect for the giver of life. So human beings don't just grab a squirrel or a rabbit or anything for that matter and just take a bite out of it. You know, the animals do that to one another. Jennifer and I are watching a a Planet Earth documentary with Peter Attenborough. And it's, uh, it's, it's just fascinating to see all of the, the creatures in the world and all of the creatures just in the corners of the earth that people don't even see. But the way that animals devour one another, different from how human beings are to approach the animal kingdom for food. So we see a distinction. We see a difference here. So we see God's respect for animal life, but most importantly, we see God's care for human life. Look at verses 5 and 6 specifically. He says this, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of 
man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now this is interesting. Because this is probably the most important passage in the Bible to support the death penalty. Now we can also come to a passage like Romans 13. I find it interesting when I talk with people sometimes, and I encountered this a lot in Britain, where uh, in Europe the death penalty is, is very unpopular. And just talking even with, with very conservative, Bible-believing evangelical Christians who did not believe in the death penalty. And, and one of the, the questions that comes up is, well, somehow, some way, somehow, some way, it's always vague, the coming of Jesus has changed that. You know, just in light of Jesus, it just doesn't really seem right to put people to death. I don't know how and why, and I can't explain it. But it just, I mean, I just can't see that because Jesus. Well, what do you mean? Well, because Jesus. And what I want you to see is that in Romans 13, Paul talks about God's wrath being poured out on the world through the instrumentality of the magistrates. Through the instrumentality of the magistrates, and he uses this language, they bear the sword. Well, I mean, we all know what a sword does. It's not for a light, you know, a light spanking or a whipping or whatever. The sword is for capital punishment. And it is the, the government that bears the sword as an instrument of God's wrath against evildoers. And that takes us all the way back. That's post-Jesus, by the way. And that takes us back pre-Moses and the law, in case you want to say, well, this is just Old Testament stuff, because the law clearly calls for death penalty for all sorts of things, stoning in particular. But this is pre-Old Testament law, and this is reiterated post-Jesus. So what we have here, I think, is very clear teaching that the death penalty is not only something we should be okay with, It is something that God requires of human beings. Now, how that is practiced, the justice of the practice of the death penalty is something that every society will have to constantly work through and check. And to make sure that there's not racial discrimination, to make sure that there is not unfair due process of the law, to make sure that innocent people are not being wrongly accused and put to death. And that's always a struggle in human broken, fallen societies. But nonetheless, here we have a very clear teaching from the Lord through his word that as creation is beginning again, so to speak, as Noah and his children step off the ark, this is God's intention for human beings. When you kill someone, when you murder, manslaughter, taking human life, that that person should be put to death. And the reason for this is because murdering someone is an affront to God. It's not just a matter of something you did to somebody else and there's a victim involved and there's the need for, for restitution of some sort. It is an affront to the living God, the God who made human beings, not just made human beings, but made human beings in his own image. And that is why the Lord says, I will require. Notice the language. It's not a suggestion for human societies. I will require a reckoning is the language that is used. One commentator 
Alan Ross says that human government was instituted in these early provisions. And and that makes sense because that is the way that Paul understands the role of human government. That one of the primary reasons government exists to the anarchist, we say, one of the primary reasons that government exists is to exercise the wrath of God in a fallen world against those who harm others, against those who break the law. And so we have that here at the very beginning of Genesis. So what is the net effect of all of this creational language? We see the creational language. We see the bracketing. It's packaging the text. We see this regard for life, this care for life, animal life and human life. What is the net effect of all of this creational language? Well, it tells us a number of things. First, it tells us that Noah and his family represent a new beginning. The former condition is reestablished. Creation is reinstated. Noah is like a new Adam. But I want you to notice something here. This is different. This is very different. We are reminded that this new world is very different from the world in the garden. We get the language in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis very different from what we find here. We see this kind of tension between man and beast. Man is now eating the animal, not naming the animal. We do name animals, but we also eat them. And the animals have a fear and a dread. They're not coming to, uh, to be named. They're not coming to be put on the ark. Now there is a tension that exists between animals and humans. We also see the need to deal with human violence. The very fact that God says, look, I will require that a person be put to death who kills another person. The very fact that God says that or has to say that tells us that we are still in a world full of canes. We're still in a world full of violence as it was. And all you have to do any given day is just look at any news page online or read any newspaper and you will see every week horrible things, things I don't even want in my head, things I don't even want, things I regret reading after I've read them the evil in the world. We see that this is going to be a different beginning, but it is a new beginning. And finally, here we see the creator who loves his creation and preserves life. And this gives us a glimpse, I think, of a God who will bring a new heaven and a new earth. This reminds us, here we have God preserving all these creatures, preserving human life. He's preserving creation as a whole. And that reminds us of the fact that everything is moving not to an eradication, but to a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And that's why we can read things like Romans 8, where it talks about the creation eagerly waiting to be renewed, longing that it will be remade. And God will do this through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ. And that's something that we talked about last week at the very end. But this is the means that God will use to bring about the new heaven and the new earth. He sends his son to offer himself as a priest, to offer himself as a propitiation for sin to God, that God would see Christ's righteousness. He would see Christ's death for sin, his bearing the penalty of sin, and he would pass over our sin and credit that to Jesus. That is how this creator 
intends to preserve his creation. And we get the very beginnings of this, this love of life, this love for what he's made. We see it here at the very beginning, which begins to make sense of all that he goes on to do in the rest of the Bible. So that's the first thing I want you to see. The second is the covenant ratified. So we see creation reestablished, reinstated, but secondly, we need to see covenant ratified. So look at verses 8 to 17. Verses 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You know, when you're talking with your kids and you want them to know that you love them or that they need to understand a particular point or they need to understand a particular lesson or whatever it is, you want them to really get it. You say it in various ways over and over and over again. It's repetitious in nature. And that's what we have in this passage. Lots and lots of repetition. So that Noah and his sons and all future readers really get it. We have already been introduced to the idea of covenant back in chapter 6. So verse 18 of chapter 6. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Talking to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so we've already seen this idea. That was the first occurrence of this word covenant in all of the Bible. So what is covenant? What is that? There's a lot of of ways to describe that and understand that, especially uh, in looking at ancient evidence from other societies around Israel for understanding what what a covenant meant. But at a very basic level, as we, as we get introduced to this idea, we'll see more features of this covenant as we go through with Abraham and later. But at a, at a very basic level, God's covenant is a promise. It is a binding commitment. It is an assurance that God will act. And in our passage for today, God confirms this covenant And he gives a sign for it. So what is the promise? What is this promise or commitment that God makes? Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. And here it is. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You know, ancient people lived in fear of flooding. 
It was just a part of life. And, and many people today live in constant fear of flooding. And even in very civilized places, places where there is much infrastructure, places where there is much uh, uh, anticipation of natural disasters, we've seen that floods can wreak havoc on society. And we see floods throughout the world, these local floods. But God here promises that he will never again bring a flood to destroy all life on the earth. And there's a couple of things we see about this covenant. We see that it is unconditional. What does that mean? It means that it is a promise from God regardless of what man will do. Now that's fascinating to think about that. God makes a promise. He makes a commitment to the world, to human beings, to all creation, regardless of everything that will follow. All the atrocities of human sin that will come, that are going on even this very hour. All of God's people who will be murdered and killed throughout the world. All the evil acts. And God makes this unconditionally. Regardless of what human beings will go on to do. Regardless of the fact that their intentions, the intentions of the heart are evil. Regardless of what they do, I am making this covenant. It is unconditional. I will do this, God is saying. So it's unconditional, but it's also universal. It is to all creatures for all time. And I think what we're meant to see here is another expression of God's common grace. Remember when we ran into Cain back in chapter 4? And we read about how God put that mark on Cain, and then he sent Cain off. He protected Cain with that mark, and there were other reasons why God did that. But we see a kind of grace there being extended to Cain. And then what happened? We saw Cain's descendants in this godless line. They went off and they began to produce various forms of civilization. Art and metalworking and all of these other things. God blessed them in that. That's common grace, even for the ungodly. Jesus mentions this in the Gospel of Matthew when he says that the sun rises on the ungodly, the unjust, the sinner, just as it does on the saint. That God sends rain on the farms of those who hate him and don't believe in him, and he sends rain on the farms of those who who trust him as father. He gives these things freely to all. And this theology runs throughout the Bible. This is the only reason, you know, this morning I was leaving my neighborhood and I noticed uh, that a number of my neighbors were just kind of enjoying a nice sunny morning, a nice, well, it wasn't sunny, but a nice Sunday morning, you know, sitting out in front of their house or working on their yard, you know, just seemed very, very happy, very full of life, All of that, a gift from God, part of his common grace. Every time a baby is born, even to a a God-hating person, it's a gift. Every breath of air, every bite of food, every enjoyment we could possibly have in this life is a gift from a good creator. And it goes all the way back to what we see here. In God making a universal covenant promise to all of creation. And God does not just make a covenant. He also gives a sign of the covenant in the form of a rainbow. So why a rainbow? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Why does God give the sign of a rainbow? Well, 
Uh, the, the answer is, we, we don't really know. We're just told that that's the sign that God gives. But we can speculate on that. We can think about that for a moment. I think there's a few ways to come at that question. Maybe two reasons, two overarching reasons why the rainbow itself in the sky is a sign of God's covenant. So the first is that rainbows point to God's glorious presence. And we know that because of two key passages in the Bible that refer to a rainbow. So Ezekiel 1.28 says that the brightness of God's glory is like a rainbow. So we see a rainbow and we think immediately that that splendor, if we could see God with our eyes and one day we will see God, that's what we, that's what kind of like what we will see. It will be just this overpowering, beautiful splendor. And so the rainbow is like God's glorious presence in perception. Also, Revelation 4, 3. A rainbow is seen around the throne. So once again, God's glory emanating from him like a rainbow. So that's perhaps one reason that it's a rainbow is because this points to God's presence. It points to his glory. So you see the rainbow, you think glorious God, covenant-keeping God, gracious God. A second reason is for the imagery itself. So what is a rainbow? Well, a rainbow is something that is between what? Heaven and earth. It's situated between heaven up there and earth down here. So in one sense, it it looks like a bit of a mediator, right? It looks like a bit of a a, a reconciler. It brings the two together. It stands between heaven and earth. It it stands between in the sense that it, it bridges the two, brings peace and reconciliation. So that's one way, perhaps, to understand the rainbow. Another way is that it spans the horizon, We look at a rainbow and it goes across the sky, all of the sky. Sometimes we we see rainbows that we can see them in in their entirety and where they come down to the earth. Sometimes we just get a, a bit of a rainbow. We see part of one, but it spans the sky. And I think that points to God's universal mercy. It's for all people, all creatures everywhere. So that's perhaps another way of interpreting the rainbow. Another way of thinking about it is that it is against the backdrop of the gloomy clouds. Uh, We lived in Scotland for four years and saw a ton of gloomy clouds. Uh, It was gloomy very frequently. Jennifer says I make too much to do of this. But the weather uh, affects me, I think, more than it affects her. Uh, And when it is really deep, dark, cloudy for a very long period of time, it gets kind of heavy. Uh, But that, that was the case. All of these dark, deep, gray clouds. And what you have is this rainbow situated amongst these gloomy, dark clouds. And what I think that could communicate is God's grace and God's mercy in the face of sin. That we have this darkness of sin, and then in the midst of that, God's grace comes shining forth. So those, those are just some things to chew on. That as you think about this rainbow, why, why a rainbow for the sign of this covenant? But the thing is, we can explain the rainbow according to natural laws, Right? I mean, you could just talk to some meteorologist. You can talk to some scientist and they can explain, oh, come on, this is silly. I mean, this is where a rainbow comes from. Let me explain it to you. And they can go into that. So does that in some way take away from the validity of the rainbow as a sign? And here I like uh, the comment of one 
scholar, one commentator, he says it this way, it is indeed a phenomenon that may be accounted for by natural laws. Yeah. But the laws of nature are truly the appointment of God. And it is just in its conformity, I like this, listen to this, it is just in its conformity to natural law that the rainbow is a pledge that the order of nature shall continue. So even if you can explain the rainbow, as we can, by natural laws, the natural laws themselves that explain the rainbow demonstrate the truth of the covenant behind the rainbow. That the reason there are natural laws, the reason there is a creation that we can study, in fact, the whole reason that science can even function is because God has made this promise and he has kept the world in its stability, as we read at the end of chapter 8. So what is our response as we close this morning? What is our response to this covenant ratified? Well, we remember this very important thing about God. We have to constantly remind ourselves of this because the devil is active to dismantle this. And we would all, I'll say it in a moment, we would all, in theory, say this is true. But Satan loves to attack this so much that undoubtedly many of us this morning are not believing it or relying on it or leaning on it or building our lives on it. And here it is. It reminds us that God is a never lying God. He's a never lying God. We all lie. One way or another, we all tell lies. We all twist the truth. We all have pretense in the way we live. Not God. He never lies. Titus 1, 2. And we went through Titus some time ago. Says that God is one who, quote, who never lies. He is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. This world as a whole will never, ever, ever flood again. Ever, ever, ever. The rainbow reminds us of God's goodness to all creation. Reminds us of God's love for life. So when we see that bird that just flew by that window, when we see our pet, when we see any form of life, there is, a, there is a disposition that we should have towards life. Not a perverted, twisted, pantheistic, human-depleting understanding of animals and life. One in which animals become like humans and there's no distinction. Or one in which animals are worshipped. But one in which we have the same heart towards creation as our God has towards creation. And the rainbow reminds us that God loves his creatures. All of those wondrous, beautiful creatures. He loves them all. And it reminds us that grace abounds over sin. When we see a rainbow, we are reminded that human sin cannot conquer the powerful grace of God. God's grace abounds over sin. If you were to take a a kickball or some kind of little bouncing ball and you were to Throw that on the ground as, as hard as you could and it go up into the sky. It doesn't matter how high it goes if it represents human sin. The ball of God's grace always goes higher. Amen. God's grace abounds over 
sin. And the rainbow reminds us, set amidst the dark and dreary clouds, reminds us that God's grace will conquer in the end. There will be a people, there will be a people who encircle a real throne of God in a new heaven and new earth. Jesus Christ, the God-man, will reign forever and we will enjoy Him, we will walk with Him, we will talk with Him, we will know Him in community with one another because God's grace is greater than our sin. That's the reason that there will be eternal life and there will be an eternal state that will happen for those who trust Christ. And most importantly, this covenant reminds us of all the other covenants to follow in Scripture. Many scholars of the Bible have pointed out that the covenants are the skeletal structure of the Bible. And there are many different ways of approaching the covenants. And theologians disagree as to how the covenants relate to one another and how one ought to understand the impact of certain covenants on the new covenant, the relationship of all the covenants to the new covenant. And all of that, there's, there's much discussion on the covenants in the Bible. But one of the things that is interesting is this is the first one. This is the first occurrence of all of the covenants. And what it reminds us is that there is a new covenant that is coming down the line. And that covenant is through Christ's blood. Romans 3:25 says that Jesus is the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let me say this. God looks at the rainbow and he stops the rain. God looks at Christ's death for you. If you're a Christian, he looks at Christ's death for you and he stops his judgment. He does not punish you for your sins. For the Christian, our sins have not been thrown away and forgotten. Our sins were placed on Jesus. That's where they went. They didn't just get smothered under some earth somewhere. It's not as though God just forgot about them and let them go, buried them under some sand and covered them up. No, he took them off of us and he put them on Jesus. So when God sees the rainbow, he says, no water. When God sees Christ, he says, no wrath, no judgment, no death, only life. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, as we kind of think ahead for the Lord's Supper, Jesus says this when he institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So all the covenants that we will encounter throughout the Bible find their true and ultimate expression in the very thing in 2018, in Noonan, Georgia, that we will image and participate in here in just a moment as we come forward and we take that little cracker and we dip it in that, in that juice or wine. We do that. We are in that moment, as it were, looking at the rainbow, the real and ultimate rainbow. And we are saying, through Christ, all my sins are forgiven. Through his blood, God's promise to me is certain. In him, 
I am secure. So once again, even in the rainbow, we see Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rainbow, which reminds us of your past faithfulness to humanity, your past grace, your mercy to humanity at the time of Noah. It reminds us of the covenant you would go on to make with Abraham and the covenants that you would make with Israel and the covenant you would make with David. And, of course, most especially, the covenant that we have through the blood of your Son. Father, we thank you for him. We pray that as we go through the Lord's Supper this morning, it will take on new meaning for us. We pray that it will be a time of enjoyment as we consider the fact that all of our sins have been taken away and that this is a secure promise, just as sure as that rainbow says, stop water. We know that Christ's blood poured out for us stops your wrath. And Father, we pray that we would trust that. We would be assured of our salvation this morning. Those of us who belong to you, that you would assure us of our salvation, not by looking at the frailty of our own lives and our own prayers we've prayed and our own professions, but by looking at Christ crucified and freshly today putting our faith in him. God, give us this grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.